0: Wall Street is full of corruption, and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumby. All right, everybody, it's Steve, The Rogue Scholar. We're going to be talking about something really, really near and dear to my heart. And that is the misperceptions that we have when you see somebody that's not living the way you want them to live. That's not making the choices you'd like them to make. Um, you know, one of the hardest things to do in this society today is to live and struggle to have a life that isn't perfect and to know that nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody really gives a fuck what's going on in your life. Many times, even when people act like they care, it's really they're tapping their foot waiting for you to finish so they can say something. Many of us are broken, right? We're just broken. But you can see there is another layer of this that is really important to focus on. And that is that next layer above, that next abstraction above the person suffering, that sits there and points at them for being loud on the school bus, that sits there and points at their shabby clothes. It sits there and points and talks about how if they'd have just made better choices, you know. And so much of what we say and do is completely born in ignorance, completely judgmental and completely irrelevant to the situation at hand. In fact, in many cases, we're actually creating more pressure. We're actually creating more negative energy. We're actually creating the seeds that can lead someone to suicide. You see it happen in bullying in high schools. You see it happening to people across the spectrum. And as we get older and somebody stumbles onto some success, we see them judging those that didn't quite make it as far as they could, squandered their potential, that didn't reach the heights everyone thought they might reach. And then we look at their situation and we judge, and we have no idea, no idea how they got there. Let me state for the record, the people that win in this country, I'm sure there's components of hard work, nothing wrong with working hard, nothing wrong with working hard whatsoever. But it is no guarantee of success. You can work incredibly hard daily, round the clock, and never achieve anything in this country the way things are in this world the way things are it's really more about who you know than what you know and there's a tremendously disaffected bourgeois class a people that are in upper echelons of society who have uh, let you know won the lottery of birth or maybe they had a shitty birth maybe their family was poor maybe whatever But they somehow or another clawed their way to the top, clawed their way out of the cesspool that neoliberalism leaves them in. The average person doesn't have those kinds of resources, doesn't have the gift of the birthright of, you know, lottery winning, you know, everybody doesn't get born into that. And even if they did, who would want that? That's not any kind of way to structure a society. So far too often we see somebody and they're angry, they're bitter, they're, they're raging. And we're judging them based on where we are. And we don't realize the pain and suffering they're going through. We don't realize that when they go to bed at night, they're freaking, maybe they're trying to kill themselves. Maybe they're thinking nonstop about how life is just not worth living anymore. You know, Maybe they've got debt that you have no idea how they came to it. Maybe they're literally living in a horrible situation with somebody that's hurting them and they're afraid to say it, they're embarrassed to admit they're being abused. Or maybe, just maybe, they have health issues that they can't afford to fix. It's causing them to not have sleep, it's causing them wake up in the morning pissed off, depressed, angry, raging. Maybe there's no hope in sight. Maybe there's no way they can envision themselves ever digging out of the hole they're in. And invariably you hear what might be the most disgusting comments of them all with go get a job. Why don't you go get a job? Well, maybe if you did something useful with your life, maybe you'd be okay right now. Well, I guess you just didn't apply yourself, did you? Right? Now, I will tell you this. There's a totally different scenario that plays out when you create agreements with people where you say, I am going to do X, Y, and Z. And then the team all has to re, you know, respond to one another. They have to depend on one another. And the person doesn't say what's going on and they just don't do the work that's in front of them. They don't say what's going on. They don't let you know what's going on. So everybody falls down because this one individual refuses to communicate and let people know that they're not going to be able to fulfill their obligation. And so the entire team fails or the entire organization fails or or whatever. You know, you see it in sports sometimes where people don't tell the truth. You see it in families, but more importantly, you see it in like activism, a lot of activism. People just ghost you. They just stop showing up. They stop doing like somehow or another the issue is no longer important. So on one hand, we have Don't judge people. You have no idea what they're going through. Don't judge people and heap coals on their head when they're already down. And then you have agreements where you've made commitments to one another and you're not fulfilling them. I want to be crystal clear. We're not talking about the area where we've made commitments to one another and you're not fulfilling them. It's okay for people to feel let down when you're not pulling your weight. That's an agreement the team's made with each other. So let's put that off to the side and let's focus on that social contract with our government and with one another that we don't even know each other. You talk about fighting for someone you don't know. Would you fight for someone that you don't know? Society's become incredibly selfish and society is getting more and more selfish by the minute. More and more self-righteous For those who won the lottery of crypto one night but the night before that they were broke as could be or vice versa they won big on crypto one day but the next day they lost everything so there's a lot of these little insertion points into the mix where suddenly somebody can be elevated out of the shithole but it's not everybody it's not everybody it's just one or two people winning big and you know, and everybody else is afraid to say they're hurting because after all, person A over here did great. So it must be an indictment on them as a human being. See, this is what this makers and takers, winners and losers, you have to know things to invest in things and scared money don't make money and all this stuff, right? It's that precarity that we build into society so that when someone fails, we can say, hmm. I want to take you back to a time in my life and I want to use my own personal story here as a bit of a a wake-up call for people that think they got it all figured out and see if you can relate to any of my story. Now my story is not the worst and it's not the best it's my story and nothing more than that. Hopefully you can find something in this that you can relate to but I'll tell you mine now. So when I was growing up, my grandmother on my father's side, she was a really, really mean lady. She had grown up Amish, and she had broken free of the Amish community, and she was one of those abusers. She burned people with cigarettes. She hit them on the head with pots and pans. She would make the kids clean up the dog kennels that she kept. And it didn't matter how cold it was. It didn't matter how young they were. She took on foster kids. Some of those foster kids to this day keep in touch with me. Tell me about how bad it was to be with Grand Hannah. She was a very, very mean woman, but she was a very creative woman. She was very good at art. She was very smart. She could read, 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 and read all the time. She was very violent and very evil and very mean-spirited. One day, after she had moved in with my parents, after having a stroke, she had recovered for a few years, and she came down to the basement. I was down in the basement with a pencil, just a regular old number two wooden pencil. And I was poking holes in an old vinyl green chair, just to hear that sensation of the pop, you know, like when you're popping the plastic wrap. I was just popping the back. She reached over the chair, picked me up by my hair, and lifted me up. It was in that moment that my mom came down and saw her doing this. This was the first time my mom caught my grandmother abusing me. It was the last time my mom caught her abusing me, because they kicked her out in that moment. But before that, my grandmother had done many, many other things. She would lean her head into the bedroom where my brother and I slept, and she would say, You have to go to bed sometime. (laughs) And she would shut the door. We were terrified that she would kill us in our sleep. This is when, like, Friday Night Videos was on. We didn't even have MTV and, you know, VH1 and stuff like that. That's how young, that's how young we were. Hungry like the wolf. I remember distinctly playing. Terrifying stuff for a child. And you start losing that security of being at home. Home is no longer secure. And then you go to school, and the kids see the weak kid. The kids kids see the kid that's not sure of himself because there's no safety at home. So that kid is either weak or he becomes a bully. It's one or the other. Because The herd, the gang will chase that person that they see as a weak person and they will harass them. They'll call them a faggot. They'll call them weak. They'll call them a loser. They'll come up with nicknames for you that everybody collectively laughs at you and pokes fun at you. And eventually, the bullied becomes the bully. And eventually, the pain and suffering from that bullying becomes the stuff of legend and sometimes infamy. It's up to each one of us at some point to make a decision to turn away from that. But it's not easy. Because when you're filled with pain and suffering and fear, no human being was built to keep that side of them. No human being was built to keep that kind of abuse inside of them. And so as my grandmother was removed from the home and as things progressed in school, where I went from being a straight A student, choir boy, all state, all county, tri-county, played Jud Fry in Oklahoma, national writers type thing where I won, you know, got the most highest score on the Maryland writing exam, reading books like crazy, being able to do all kinds of stuff. I got tired of being picked on as the nerd, the kid that played Dungeons and Dragons. And so the metalhead community pulled me in. And I became a burnout, started smoking weed every day, started drinking whenever I could. I think I might have been. 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. And that was going on in the background as I was trying to study for a chemistry exam, as I was trying to pass a geometry exam, as I was trying to read a complex book on biology, as I was trying to understand philosophy or logic. I was busy worrying whether I was going to get my ass beat in the hallway, whether I would get my ass beat at home, whether I would have any problems somewhere else. I was living in fear 24 by 7. I questioned everything about myself and even playing football. I had never, my mom wouldn't let me play football when I was in middle school. So when I got there, the kids picked on me weak, wasn't built for football. I was still lanky and skinny and scrawny, but I wanted to play. I was really good at throwing the football. I enjoyed football, but I had never played organized. So I was picked on mercilessly there as well. Isolated and picked on, shamed, ridiculed, bullied. And so I barely passed high school. I think I had a 1.67 GPA, not to be too precise. There was talk of me getting a scholarship for choir that I rejected because I didn't want the stigma of being a choir boy even though I got all state. So what did I end up doing? I ended up working in Ocean City, Maryland, being a pizza guy. All of a sudden, I got popular. I was but I still had this thing going on, this mean streak, and drugs and alcohol were really taking over. I would wet the bed every night. My friends took a raft, cut it in half, wrapped it around my mattress because I drank myself to oblivion every single night. A liter of tequila, didn't matter. Six, 12 pack of Corona or whatever was available, didn't matter. Any drugs laying around the house, I didn't care. I wasn't selective, I'd take whatever was there. Acid, sure. Opium, why not? Cocaine, absolutely. all sorts of stuff that you would never imagine or maybe you would maybe you have had this experience before but as i went through that period i was trying to find my self-esteem and how many women i could meet i was trying to find my self-esteem and being barney badass and how many people i could get in a fight with and beat up I started getting really big muscle-wise. I went from being a weakling to a guy that was benching over 350 pounds, had long hair, and had an attitude. Everybody called me Satan because my bangs were down in my face. I just look at you like freaking the misfits, long hair, ready to fight, huge muscles, ready to fight at the drop of a dime. You look at me wrong, I'm ready to fight. So all this stuff plays into who you are. And it takes a major thing to happen, or it takes something to happen. It takes a turning point to happen, to start changing you. Well, the DWIs started, and the wrecked cars started, and my mom and dad kept trying to bail me out and save me, but they just couldn't. I was just too far gone. Ultimately, I got sober. I'm going to cut out a lot of the gruesome stories because that's not the fun part of the story. It's not important. We all have war stories about the stupid shit we did. The problem was I couldn't imagine a day without drinking. I'd wake up in the morning hungover. I'd tell everybody I'm not drinking. By 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I was already drinking again. So when I got sober, it was miraculous. It really was miraculous. I went to my first AA meeting and some big, huge, sweaty dude with a hairy back came up and gave me a big hug and told me I never had to drink again. Well, that lasted for about eight years. But during this time period, I married somebody who has lived life on, you know, holier than holy, right? And they didn't like my support structure my AA support structure, my NA support structure. They didn't like the church I was going to, and they wanted me to leave my church. And so my father-in-law decided that, well, I don't much like this church. Dolly, we're going to go to a different church now. Okay? Never mind the fact that this church was my fucking hospital. It wasn't just a church. It was my support system. And it was getting ripped away because I was being told, either you leave this church and leave all that you've been doing to try to get yourself together, or we're leaving you. So all of a sudden, there's this horrible, horrible decision I've got to make. Do I stop all the things I've been doing to try and stay sober? To appease people that are too righteous to understand what they're causing here by doing this? Am I being selfish by holding on to being at this place that they don't want to go to? Should we go worship separately? Should we go do things separately and not be a family or, or be a family but apart or what? I don't know. But all these decisions start happening. And little by little, our pastor told us, you guys should not get married, but we got married anyway, because that's what people do when they're pregnant, when they have, when they get pregnant before they're married. They they think they've got to rush off and get married, and we were no exception. So we ran off to the Justice of Peace, got married. We hated each other already. We were already mortal enemies because of all this stuff going on, but we got married anyway. Big dumbo choice number one, but we didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was being noble. And for years, we tried to make it work but it only got worse and worse and worse. Only got worse and worse and worse. We got divorced and it was brutal, brutal, brutal. I was raging all the time. I was bitter, I was angry. All the support that I had had been taken away from me and that was replaced with this sanitized, respectability bullshit. All the important stuff where I could talk, and be real, was ripped away from me. It was a decision I had to make. I had to make, do I stay with my family or do I continue to try to be sober and to try and stay sane? I relapsed. I ended up going back to college. I ended up getting my associate's degree, ended up getting a bachelor's degree. I ended up getting certificates and bachelor. I ended up getting promoted into senior management at Verizon. I was redeeming the time, right? I was trying to make up for all those years that I lost, all those years that I screwed up, all those bad decisions. I was trying to make up for, I was working around the clock to fix what I had broken. And it was never good enough. And when you don't feel like you can succeed, you get bitter, you get angry, you get rageful. And when you're excommunicated from the people you're supposed to know and love because you're not happy and you're raging or you're angry and they don't care, they just, all they care about is their precious sensibilities. They don't care about what you're going They don't care about that stuff these things it doesn't matter what you shake up a soda bottle and you crack it open it's going to explode everywhere and that is what was going on so i went back out on another bender two years sobriety gone this time instead of just getting arrested for dwi this time i get possession This time I get paraphernalia. This time I get all kinds of big, heavy charges. They threw out most of them, thank God, but they didn't throw them all out. And that ding, that night, that right there ruined all the work that I had put in up till that point. I was busy working on two master's degrees at the time. And everything got thrown out. I couldn't apply for another job because if I left the company, I was screwed because i would have a background check issue now i'm trapped i'm a guy that's got all these things smarts brains degrees freaking certifications you name it and i'm trapped i'm a divorced guy going getting ready to go through a ugly divorce going to miss my kids going to lose my home And all the equity that I had earned for the family, and all the debt that I had taken on with the understanding that I would be growing a family and it didn't matter. All that shifted from for the help of the family to just on my back. $120,000 worth of student debt strapped on my back like a solo swig of tequila. Right on my back. So ultimately, what do you do? You've got to keep trying to earn more money somehow. You start taking out bad loans because what else are you going to do? You can't meet your bills. You file bankruptcy. It doesn't matter because you can't discharge student debt. Fuck you, Biden. All these different factors play in. And then you remarry, because after all, what does everybody do when they're looking for something? They find someone else, right? They just latch onto someone else to fill the void. They're going to fix the past relationship with a new relationship, right? Because that's what human beings do when they're left unguarded, when they don't have good mentors in their life, and they don't have people in their life really, really helping them and loving them through the issues. The good news for me is even though my father and I had a horrible relationship when I was young, something else was going on during this time. My father got supranuclear palsy, progressive supranuclear palsy. It's the thing that killed Dudley Moore and it's very rare. But during this time, we thought he had Parkinson's. We didn't know he had progressive supranuclear palsy. And ultimately, He and I found a way to patch it up. You remember that sweaty guy I told you about with the hairy back that gave me a hug and said I never had to drink again? He said, I'll be your dad until you can love your dad. Your dad, he did the best he could with the tools he had. We're going to have to cut him some slack, son. But you, until you can do that, I'll fill whatever void you need until you can love your dad for who he is. And that gave me back my old man. My old man spoke at my one year anniversary, told everybody the whole story. I was like, Dad, this isn't really the place for it. But he felt moved to tell the story of all the abusive things he had done. And I didn't know whether to jump up and hug him, or whether to just sit there and sob. But my father and I were able to make things right before he died, right there, just after Bernie conceded in 2016. But I want you to know, I've got a divorce that I'm paying for. I've got all of the debt from student aid on my back. I got all the family debt on my back because, you know, the other side didn't have any of that to carry with them. They got all the benefit. They got half of everything but except for half of the debt. They got to keep the money but not keep the debt. Not a bad deal if you can get it. Take it every time. Take it an extra time on Saturday if it's offered, right? Well, long story short, I'm still trying to get more degrees because, goddamn, I can't make enough money to pay for the child support, pay for the home, pay for the debt, and just survive. If I don't keep climbing this ladder, I have no interest in climbing. So not only am I putting a good 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day in my day job, I'm also trying to do chores and visitation and things like that in the nighttime. And then I'm going to college full-time after hours and throughout. I don't have a time to breathe. So what did I do? Like any good drunk, I went back out drinking again. Well, in 2006, my father took my keys from me and said, you're not going to kill yourself tonight, son. And that was the last drink I had, September 15, 2006. September 15th, 2016, my father passed away on my 10th anniversary of being sober. All of this weighs into who you are and what you are. And you you want to have these spiritual ideas. You want to have these lofty ideas. But you're having night terrors about the debt piling up. You're having night terrors about your kids not loving you and not wanting to see you, them not understanding that you don't have the money to just fly on down to the Alabama or Texas or wherever, that you can't just pick up and leave because they are they finally come. They don't want to communicate with you, but when they're there, they act like you're a bad guy because you don't go see them, but you want to see them, but they don't know that their mother's not letting them or their, their mother asked to speak to your psychiatrist and your AA sponsor before you're allowed to see them, wanting to violate all that confidentiality and poison the well of yet another support system. You see how this plays out? Now, all of a sudden, the kids think you don't love them. The kids think you hate them. The kids don't think you want to be around them. And they start judging you. And then they start talking to each other. And now your kids don't want to be around you. This shit piles up deep just keeps piling up. Now you look around you today. The good news is, even though I have been hit in the head a thousand times, unable to refinance my home, people trying to foreclose on my home, constantly having to find a new job because all you can get is contract work. Things like that. The precarity of that fear, the fear of losing everything, of not having a home your father dead, your mother unable to really even hold a conversation anymore. And instead of a really tight core family, everybody out doing their own thing, nobody talking to each other, nobody really paying attention. Dog eat dog, you do you dog kind of thing. This is just my story, right? I'm, and I'm not even telling you most of the good stuff because that's not the point of it. This is not a sensationalized conversation. This is to show you that you can work around the clock, kill yourself to you get degrees, kill yourself, kill yourself. My family didn't have money. So going to school was on me. All that debt. And then in 2009, when I got laid off during the global financial crisis and all the debt started pouring down on me, I had to make a decision. I ended up going with that HAMP program, thank God, and was able to keep my home for a little while. But the predatory bullshit that was going on around me, all sorts of stuff, too much. Like I'm talking about like, constantly putting your fingers on your pulse because you're like you you hear your heartbeat boom 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 you feel that fear that coldness rush through your body of terror sheer unadulterated terror that you're not going to be able to ever do anything better than this and you start sizing up the rafters to see which one would hold the noose better it's all very real it's all very real so as we sit there and we look around us and we're fighting about mmt and all these other lofty things they're all real world things they matter because that knowledge of mmt allows us to create the social safety net the fabric of society that allows each of us to know that there are choices that eliminate. The pain and suffering and the precarity. The terror that makes you say, God, do I really have to live another 50 years on this shithole? Can I please just check out now, gang? Maybe if I don't take my blood pressure medicine, maybe the Lord will do it for me anyway. What do you think about that? This neoliberal world that we're in is all about makers and takers. You should have made better fucking choices, dickhead, things like that. I got three seminars through a PhD program and had to drop out. It's not because I'm stupid. Fuck. I'm, I'm. I'm reasonably intelligent, folks. I literally was accepted and was going through a PhD program. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have mommy and daddy capable of sending me around the world to do fun things. I wasn't born into that world. Every bit of my education came from my ass killing myself. And then eventually the machine catches you because you're running. You can envision a nightmare where you're running in slow motion as this fucking butcher's knife is coming behind you, chop, 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 right on your heels, like cutting the tail, the, the heel of your shoe off as it sliced down. You're just like, God, it's going to stay one fucking step ahead of the goddamn knife. And then you're left with even worse choices again, right? Because you think it's all about you and all about your effort and all about what you do. But in reality, in reality, society has been structured to discipline us into conforming to be good little tiny slaves for capital. All of this has been doing this. All of this is to mold you to be a slave. Slave. My God. The American dream is an American nightmare, my friends. Extreme fraud and corruption in our government. They don't represent us, they don't do for us at all. But they create rules and laws and, and structures that keep us from ever achieving anything of what we could have achieved on this earth. Had we lived in a decent society that lifted people up, not put them down and squashed them. And as much as all of us want to act like we're on the same team. Look at how many people judge based on food stamps. Look at how many people judge by the clothes you wear and by the job you have. Now, it is one thing to say, hey, look, if you don't have an open mind, you're not going to learn these necessary things. That's true. We're all in process. So trying to be better for our own reasons, not necessarily to work for the man, but for our own validation and survival. Well, shit, change or die. There's no question. That's true. But that has become the rule of the land. If you didn't change to accommodate your situation, well, you're just screwed. And the machine will roll over you like just dry old bones. All of this is happening above the cloud. We don't even see it happening. Maybe we do little glimpses of what's happening but in reality, they keep it so that we at the bottom are fighting against each other, looking over their shoulder in line, trying to figure out why they're getting over on the welfare system. Why are they getting over on the food stamp system? Well, you know what? For every person that gets over on the food stamp system or whatever, and gets a little extra out of it, bravo. I hate to say that, but bravo. They've put us in a position where if you ask for anything more than subsistence, you're a fucking taker. If you don't wanna live in complete and utter precarity, you, you, you're you just a loser. You're, you, you know, get over it, dude. do better, make better decisions. And that's not even happening at the top, folks. That's in our own communities. That's in your own friends, at your own church, at your own, you know, baseball team, at your own job site, wherever. You see this happening in the Bitcoin space now. People that were once part of the working class, that were once part of a revolutionary group, now become investors. Just like the stock market, only Silicon Valley. And they know it's a Ponzi scheme, and they know that if they don't get other people to invest in it, they won't get the money either, because you got to pump it up to dump it out. So we start forgetting because look at the hippies, look at the Grateful Dead friends, all of our friends from the dead era. All those people at Woodstock. Not all of them. It's always never statements get us in trouble. But a large selection of that Grateful Dead community, which I am a proud member of. But a lot of them, they are now neoliberals. They're checking their stock portfolio. They're living that life and they stand in the way, oftentimes of things that would help other people. You see it in the elections, et cetera. You see it in the the way people talk to one another. I paid my student debt, why shouldn't you? Well, back when you were going to school, sir, it was a thousand dollars for the entire degree program. Now it's 50,000 for one year of tuition. So while the government that creates money every time it spends, folks, it doesn't matter whether you like this fact or not. This is one of those things where, yes, it doesn't matter what you think. The reality is this is true. It doesn't matter whether you believe in some crazy conspiracy of the Rothschilds or whatever. Fact is, is that when the federal government decides it wants to spend, it spends and it creates new money to do it every single time, not sometimes, doesn't print money, it does it every single time. So there's never an issue of affordability, ever, by the way, not sometimes, never. Social Security ain't broke, they're lying. Medicare doesn't require any cuts, we could give it all. Every single thing we need in society is available to us today, but our government doesn't serve us. It serves wealth, it serves capital, it serves the investment community. It serves private property, but it doesn't serve you and I. And so I cringe when I see my friends in the alternative media group bragging about crypto, elevating crypto, when in reality it's a Ponzi scheme that means everybody can't win. And so you're pushing a neoliberal agenda without even realizing it. without even realizing it. And so it creates more makers and takers and hatred and so forth at the lower level, keeping us from uniting in class struggle to fight back against finance, global finance, capital, etc. The real predators, the real vultures that serve the oligarchs that suck every bit of our labor out of us, suck every bit of our vitality from us, and pump it up so that they can make money and they can live that life that the nobles used to live of yesteryear on the peasants in their serfdom. We have created a gilded age, a neo-feudal state, the only difference is, is that we've been left to believe that any one of us at any time, if we just make the right decisions, can go right up the food chain and just be all we wanna be. And so we're all embarrassed millionaires. Nobody's willing to say, uncle, I can't do it anymore. This is killing me. So what happens? Either people literally kill themselves and check out. And all we hear is how selfish they were. They were such a selfish person for taking their lives. No discussion about why they took their life. No discussion about the societal impact of austerity. None on the neoliberal project that is the United States that we've expanded around the world. Now, we don't talk, we talk about the selfishness of the individual who went through hell and back throughout their life and realized that the future was worse alive than dead. Now, I don't agree with that. I want to protect people. I want to stop suicide. I want to do anything we can to make society a better place. But I want to put the blame where the blame belongs. The blame is on the systems and the structure of our society today that allows us to look down our nose at people while simultaneously doing the bidding of the oligarchs above, doing the bidding of the power elite while thinking we're revolutionary while we buy Bitcoin and help some Silicon Valley oligarch get his takeaway from the crypto that they just went ahead and waited for you to pump it up. Dupes all the way around. But how do we fix this, folks? How do we get out of this We can't communicate, we have no media that can reach out. We're propping up media outlets that don't even talk about modern monetary theory that are literally saying the opposite of it, which is once again, playing into the hands of the oligarchy. We rally around people that are clearly not guiding us in a way that would be beneficial to society. We want to join, we want to be a part of a gang and the gang is more important than the truth. We get distracted with masking and anti Oh, I'm not, you, you it's forced to make me wear a mask in the middle of a fucking pandemic. It's force, I tell you. But we're not talking about the extreme poverty. We're not talking about the fact that the government is making student debt non-dischargeable, that we're not helping people with their mortgages, that we're not helping people with their rent, that we're not helping people eat, that we're not helping people lead lives that have some rest and relaxation so we can build relationships and build those core uh, connecting points to society to make us care for one another. We're so disconnected that each person that dies or whatever, it's just another number. It doesn't even matter anymore. We've become so callous that we don't even think of it like a big deal. I want you to understand that the reason why I'm doing this particular show today is because when I talk about modern monetary theory out there in Twitter land or when I talk about it on Facebook, when I talk about it on other shows or when I do my own rants, I'm not doing it as someone that was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. I'm not doing it as someone trying to sheepdog you to the Democratic Party. I'm not doing it as someone who vote blue no matter who. I'm doing it as someone who says, we've got two choices. We either learn how the system works and educate enough people to make the system work for us, or B, if we can't do that, that we have enough information for a revolution, that when the time comes to rebuild society, that we understand how to do it ourselves, reform a revolution. But staying stuck as we are today is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Every bit of knowledge I've got came from beautiful, wonderful people that spared their time with me to educate me. But it was all 100% because I saw what was going on in my own life and I couldn't take it anymore. So I learned MMT so I could advocate to you all that we can have nice things and we don't have to live this life. I'm not an academic and I never want to be confused to be one. Even if I were to get a PhD, I'd still want to be an activist. I don't want to ever look down my nose at somebody because they said murder because they called austerity murder. Oh, we can't talk about that in polite society. I never want to be that guy. I always want to be real. I always want to be real because I know the people that really need to hear these messages are people that went through what I went through and worse. I never want to cajole the powers that be to let them know it'll be okay that we can do this so you're not hurt. I want to make sure that people on the bottom know that there is a way to solve generational poverty, that there's a way to solve these things, and it's not feel-good made-up story that we just shoot the shit on. I'm telling you, the fabric of all of this stuff is baked into modern monetary theory. Even if some people are of that bourgeois class, even if some people are entitled elite, doesn't matter. The the knowledge is what is important. And it's really the application of that knowledge for the little people. For we, the people, we need to have knowledge because the oligarchs laugh at us when we start talking about the Rothschilds. They literally laugh at you. They don't find you to be a threat at all. The minute a loser story comes out, the Rothschilds. They're going, <laughs> hey, can you pass me one of them Cohibas? Let's get, give me some grandma on you. I just ought to be good. Get the popcorn ready. These guys talking Rothschilds again. That is the stuff that has infiltrated our movement, infiltrated society, and it is literally preventing us from rallying around to do the things we need to do to either create the reforms we need or create the revolutionary uh, situation that we need to have that revolution. We are distracted, we are depressed, we are sad. We are mortally wounded and we are disconnected from one another by a thousand degrees because of this neoliberal society that we're in. And for those that don't address the neoliberal society that we're in, the actual things of neoliberalism, it's not just a pejorative about Democrats, folks. Neoliberalism is an intense, perverse drive to privatize everything. To make Wall Street and banks serve us versus the government serving us. To let the invisible hand versus the hand of government That's what neoliberalism is. It doesn't just mean Democrat. It's not synonymous with Democrat. Although the Democrats are neoliberal, so are the Republicans. Do you understand? We have two neoliberal parties. It's not just capitalists. That's too easy. They want to do buying and exchanging. Oh, okay. Neoliberalism is a description of the intense privatization that goes on the lack of the public purpose, the lack of the public message, the lack of the public servant. So if you go through life looking down your nose at people because they're angry, because they're outraged, you're missing an opportunity to tap into that. Now that does not mean though, that you become a fascist because fascists are angry. So let's become a fascist. You see what I'm saying? It means that we have to be aware of the freaking disgusting conditions that created really, really broken people. And we have to be the collectors of the broken toys and we have to put them back together. You have no idea what anyone has ever gone through. You may think you do, but you don't. And even my telling of my story was only one, 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 one millionth of the story. I gave you some highlights. I gave you some milestones. I gave you some cause and effect. But I wanted you to know that I'm not coming at this as some kid with some ideological dreams, some utopian dreams. I'm coming at this knowing that we're gonna be coming to a real for real decision point soon. We got existential climate crisis. We've got healthcare problems. We've got all these real things that we talk about, but we're at a point now where it's going to be really, really double down on reform or the people are gonna say no more. I can't take it anymore. And it's gonna to go to revolution. I can tell you right now, my body's broken. I've got horrible chronic illnesses, arthritis, you name it. I go to bed every single night in excruciating pain. I barely sleep an hour a night unbroken. Every night, no matter what, is a night of pain. Revolution and I, probably not going to be me up on top of the car, standing with a face mask with a Molokov or a flower or whatever. That's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the dude in your next t-shirt. But I do have knowledge and I am trying to spread it and I'm doing what I can within the tools that I have. Just like my father who did the best he could with the tools he had. I'm trying to do the best I can with the tools I have. I'm trying to leverage my rage, my righteous earned rage. The rage that I have for the circumstances and conditions that I cannot find a way out of, that I can't bust free of, that I've got to make my own personal choices. Can I survive this world as it is today with the pressures that I have? And that's not always the same answer each day. Each day I come up with a slightly different answer. I hate to say it. But know for a fact that there are people out there to this day that are suffering. And if you don't make yourself available to them, if we don't stop judging, if we don't start building and we don't start organizing and we don't start trying to find ways to build community and accept the rage, accept the anger and not tone police them, to tone police is to totally ignore all the material conditions that individual is suffering from talk about disrespectful that my friends that my friends should be something each of us holds dear to our heart as we go and we try our best to create a movement of the 99 percent As we try to take those not mean us kind of statements from 2016, 2020 and say, okay, the show over there in the Democratic Party was obviously a lie. We didn't have a chance. But maybe if we organize outside of the political structure, maybe if we organize in parallel, maybe we have a chance to take action and really, really save some lives. Because the current setup is murderous. And I hope nobody bitches at me for saying, oh, he's a whiner or he's a victim. I'm still going. I'm still doing it. I'm out here on a camera, for God's sake, telling you my story. Not puffing up, not bragging, not nothing. Telling you literally that I wet the fucking bed and they had to cut a raft and wrap it around my mattress. Folks, I'm trying to show you You have no idea the struggle each individual is going through in our movement today until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And since none of us can walk in everyone's shoes, we have to pull together to come up with the best possible structure in society that we can for all of us. I don't know what more to say than that, my friends, other than I hope that me spelling this stuff out there was helpful to somebody because ultimately for me, I've already told this before. It's not even therapeutic really to me anymore. What I'm looking at here is trying to help you guys understand that if we don't pull together, there is no future to fight for. Steve Grumbine with The Rogue Scholar. Have a great day, everybody. I'm out of here. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives.